And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. So for those of you who live or are native to Southern California, or even have been tourists out here, what I'm going to tell you may not come as a surprise. You may not know that it exists, you may want to drive out there, but you've probably heard about it. For those of you who aren't, I will try to put a picture in your mind of this very specific area of Southern California, which is just outside Palm Springs, uh, the entrance to the Coachella Valley, a little further east of the Morongo Casino, if you take the 10 east from Los Angeles. It's about 120 miles right on the road. And as you round a bend, you are going to see gigantic structures, uh, these humongous wind turbines. And it's a wind farm that is, it's on both sides. And if you go at night, you're going to see little red dots. And you're just going to see miles and miles of just this really amazing looking um, wind. This wind farm is what it is. I mean, these, these things are so big, they will make Don Quixote seem normal, because you'll totally understand why someone would want to attack these windmills. They are like something out of outer space, really. And so I've drove by these several times, and I wondered to myself, especially after doing the Stell experience, where you learn just how amazing and free this energy is. I mean, you know, it's very simple. It's a, it, wind, wind power is very simple to capture. And it can be, um, you know, the, the energy can be stored in batteries. So this is, it's pretty amazing what you can do with this stuff. But on a large scale basis, uh, it, it's, it's pretty amazing to see people harvest wind. So for today's episode, I managed to sit down with Randy Buckmaster. And as a side note, if that's not the coolest name in the world, I don't know what is. The kind of people I want on my side are Buckmasters, and now I have one in my back pocket. So Randy is a local historian and tour guide and kind of wind turbine energy guru. Uh, this man's head is just filled with all this, this knowledge. So I am going to sit down with him, and we are going to discuss the benefits of wind turbine energy, talk about the history, and um, really just kind of unpack this, this incredible phenomenon that you know is uniquely situated in this part of the world, because as it turns out, uh, this particular valley, uh, this particular area of Southern California is arguably one of the windiest in the country. So uh, it's very special, very unique. Um, so let's get right into this. So Randy, uh, thank you for being on the program today. So how did you get started with WinTech? Well, it's, you know, it's, it was just one of those things that I answered an ad and, and uh, it turned out to be, it was really a good mix for me and I happened to have the right kind of driver's license to do it. That was it? That was the only qualification? Well, <laughs> I had to come out and take the tour and right. Because they they had told me that you know it, it um, there's a lot to learn and it scares most people. Uh-huh. I took the tour and I was excited. Yeah, and, and it didn't scare me at all. And so I've been on a almost a three year journey now to uh, continue to improve my knowledge. So uh, they had a basic tour set up, and yeah. so I learned basically their tour, and then I kept adding on to it. Well, why scared? Why, 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 why do people get scared there? there? When you go through the tour, there is, it's two hours of people, people walk away and going, now if I could only remember all that, you know. Oh, so the, a memory thing, yeah. not like a physical intimidation by no, the size no. of the... No, it's, it's, more, it's more of learning the facts because you've got to be ready to answer questions. Right. And it's not just what you present in the tour, but you also have to have background information to be able to answer all the different questions that people have. Right. And so that's been an ongoing journey of making sure that I don't get asked a question yeah. that I can't answer. Right, which is, that's my job. That's what I try to do is give a question you can't, or have a hard time answering because it gets to a truth that are sometimes difficult to get to, right? Yeah. And I think with, with this type of, because people are interested in, in green energy, um, 
But, you know, when people drive and they see these huge wind farms, you know, people have a lot of questions like who owns it? Because they're just big windmills, right? Like seemingly unmanned, like gigantic, gargantuan structures, you know? Yeah, I had one lady that thought they were aliens. Really? Yeah. She was, she, she was scared of them. Like that they were aliens? It was yeah. alien technology or that no, they... they... They were aliens. Wow. Invading our world. Really? Yeah. How'd you handle that? She said, my husband laughs at me, and I tried not to. <laughs> well, so, like, do you have to commit something like that immediately, or do you kind of, uh, you know, go along with it? Well, she was actually a writer for a, uh, a website, and she had come down from Minnesota to take the tour. And I picked her up at the hotel, and we were driving out, and I and it was just asking her, I said, now, what are you wanting to get from your from your tour today what mm-hmm. do you she said well there's two or three things but she said one of them is I'm scared of them and I said well why are you scared and she says well my husband laughs at me but she said I think they're aliens huh now I was really sad because there's some Mitsubishis out there that are one megawatt yeah had they been turned the right way as we w- drove down the road yeah on the back of the nacelle they have what looks like two eyes and a nose uh-huh. on the very back. Yeah. They kind of look like something from an alien movie. Sure. And sat, I, probably it was a good thing they were turned the wrong way. She couldn't <laughs> well, see them. Well, she was either kidding with you or she was serious. If she, she was, was serious, serious, then, she was serious. then yeah, that would have probably freaked her out. Turned out she also had motion sickness, extremely <laughs> bad. I couldn't park the bus where she could see the blades moving because really? it made her sick. Wow. Yeah. So do you have lots of stories like that, like the different people you bring on a tour that kind of like just... She was probably the most the bizarre, most, ex- most extreme? Yeah, most extreme. Most people are pretty normal? Oh, nobody's normal. Right. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, people have a lot of the same questions, you know, uh, why aren't they moving and, and yeah, yeah. who owns them, you know, like like you said. Yeah. And they're always surprised to find out that Edison doesn't own them. So yeah. Well, now what was it about turbines? Because obviously something like when you took the tour, I mean, you know, the driver's license was your only real qualification walking in. But there must have been something inherent about them that you found extremely interesting to continue doing it for so long. I did. I, I found that uh, I, I liked the technology. I liked the idea of the clean energy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where I come from, they have a they have coal plants. Right. And there was a lot of controversy right before I left there about uh, this coal technology. And they continued with it, but I could see that there was real problems with it. And so even though I didn't really know anything about the windmills, it immediately struck me as something very, very interesting mm-hmm. and very important, actually, right. to how we're doing things. I don't think a lot of people know where we get our energy from. I mean, because like I grew up by a nuclear power plant, um, like right next door. And I don't think people even know how that works. All they know is they flip a switch and light comes on. And right. I mean, it is, I mean, it's a complex thing, obviously, but I don't think people really understand the source because even the power plant that was, you know, right next door didn't provide us power in the city right next to it. You know, similar to like where you are isn't powered by the windmills, which you would think it would be, which is kind of strange. Well, that soon is going to change uh, to, to an extent. We're, we're going to go all green with all solar oh, okay. and batteries, and, we're going to, and they're going to take the building off the grid. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's going to be happening soon. That's awesome. Uh, there was, so there's this small community that um, I did another podcast on. It's called The Stell Experience. Uh, shameless plug for myself on this. But what's cool about them, the really cutting-edge thing about that community is that there's an entire push for, for people being off the grid and for green and clean technologies. And there are several people, because it's in Illinois, um, and we're going to get to the inconsistencies of, of wind. You know, it's hard to predict when it's going to be in certain areas. But it's a windy place sometimes, and when it's not windy, there's a lot of sun. So a lot of people have a hybrid solar wind turbine. And there are several people off the grid, and one of the keys to that is really uh, battery power. So, Because uh, uh, you can't, if you don't, you, you can make electricity, but if you're not holding it anywhere, you know, it's just going into whatever, you know, it's being dissipated or whatever. Um, so we'll get into that in a second. But let's talk about the history of, of turbines and, and wind energy, which you seem to be pretty knowledgeable on. Um, obviously, we can start with um, people harnessing the power of wind to push sailboats uh, and how that evolved. Well, the power of wind actually goes back thousands, thousands of years. 
because even back in the Middle East, back uh, many years before Christ, mm-hmm. um, uh, wind power was used to p- pump water mm-hmm. as well as uh, grind grain. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they were actually well ahead in technology as, as Europe was just going through the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. It was already in the Middle East. And then gradually some of that technology moved up to uh, uh, Europe. And that's when, of course, in Holland, they started building the windmills to clear the water mm-hmm. out, of the, out, of the, out of the land so they could reclaim the land. Um, so the history of wind is, is, is long. And that's not kind of how they became known for windmills, because when people think of windmills, Holland's what they think of. Exactly. And, you know. Exactly. But um, truthfully, the, the, you know, it was in Scotland that the very first one, very first wind turbine or wind generator was built. Um, engineering professor by the name of James Blythe built that. And uh, he had a laboratory at his home and he needed power for it. So he, uh, he built his own and made hmm. it. Wow. It was the very next year in this country, 1888, with a a gentleman by the name of Charles Brush built the very first one. And uh, he he powered his home for many years uh, using that until finally city power came his way. So wind goes back a long, long ways. Uh, The Danish people at around 1900 got started getting involved, and they've done a lot of engineering over the years. It, it powered communities during World War II uh, for them uh, when they didn't have petroleum to, to provide power. Uh, Let me ask you a quick question. Let me go back. So in 1888, when they were people were powering that, you know, the guy who powered it for several years, uh-huh. how does he store the energy? Or is it just always batteries. on? Oh, he did. So what kind of, what were the batteries like back then? Well, they were, they were basically like your car batteries, but deep cycle batteries. And, uh, uh, just in like an ionic solution that would like keep a charge from one side. That's correct. Very simple. Okay. Correct. And he, he operated off that. Wow. Uh, he had those batteries in his basement. So he just, he just kept a bunch of them and just yeah, powered it with a windmill. Exactly. That's inc- You don't really think of that type of technology. You know, there's this really cool movement called steampunk where people like to take, you know, old-timey Western, you know, turn-of-the-century technology, usually steam-powered stuff, hence the name, and kind of see what kind of modern things you can make with them or, you know, it's really cool. And you never think about, like, electricity and battery power being a part of that world. It's, you know, way more, you know... Uh, not not as evolved technologically, you know, pre-electricity kind of days. Right. Yeah. Uh, even uh, even the gentleman in, in uh, Scotland used batteries with his as well, I believe. Wow. Uh, and and here in this country, from the you know the early parts of the 20th century, uh, up in the upper Midwest and Great Plains areas, wind was used pretty extensively on farms and ranches. They had a lot of wind up there, you mm-hmm. know, in say Minnesota or Montana or uh, uh, Iowa, but they didn't have electricity yet. And so their uh, wind was used pretty extensively and they had batteries, hmm. um, that they, that they worked off of. They were 32 volt machines and they were 32 volt batteries. And, uh, and they had whole lines of appliances and, and, uh, stuff you could use in your home. Um, had one gentleman on the tour one day was telling me his, he, on his grandfather's farm, they used one to keep the milk cold before the dairy picked it up. No kidding. Well, and it's what well, you make a good point there because it's the rural areas that really needed these things because you know electricity was kind of wasn't really harnessed until the turn of the century, really in a, in a mass produced kind of way. Right. And so you in these rural places on farms, you needed some way to have electricity because that's what the modern era was using and a lot of the stuff that they would buy needed it and you had to generate it yourself because you didn't have power lines that would come to you well yeah i mean in 1930 if you wanted to be in the modern world you needed your zenith radio right yeah so exactly. you could listen to all the radio shows and so uh you, uh, you wanted lights you didn't want to use kerosene anymore so <laughs> right. so they they need electricity to do that and uh, be like the city folks in that sense yeah well and the guy you mentioned that so um it was jacoby right who d- developed the entire line of appliances that were specifically compatible with his windmills, right? Jacobs. 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 I'm sorry. Jacobs. So tell me about him, because I, I think his story is pretty interesting. Well, there was four brothers, actually. They grew up on a ranch in eastern Montana back in the early 1900s. And uh, they uh, they had gotten into shortwave radios. And, you know, if you're going to run a, sh- a shortwave radio, you're going to need power mm-hmm. for it. 
They and ran the shortwave radios. Yes. Like programming on it? or They did programming. They had a radio show that they even did on shortwave. Huh. I never realized people did that. But, no. uh, but But, yeah, and they even sold it later after he got into the windmills which is kind of like early podcasts so yeah. it's like kind of like avant-garde internet radio before any of that existed exactly huh. exactly and so uh, so but they were innovative guys and they had a lot of wind there in montana uh-huh. and so they started looking for ways to make it they first used an old-fashioned farm windmill with all the mm. blades on it that we've sure. all seen that didn't work but they but they kind of and then marcellus jacobs actually became a pilot hmm. And he got to looking at the prop design, and he got to thinking, you know, airplane props, That's that design would probably work for a wind to make electricity. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he developed. He used wooden blades, just like they were on airplanes at that time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he built a very, very good machine. They were called wind chargers. And uh, his became known as the most reliable. They'd last 20, 25 years uh, with virtually no maintenance on them. Hmm. And they, they had very smart controls about them. They knew if the batteries were getting uh, fully charged, they, and, it, and it would cut the, the charge to a trickle. Huh. They knew how to turn themselves out of the wind if, if the wind was too strong. So they were very smart machines wow. in their own sense. How did they turn themselves out of the wind before computers? Because uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly the technology they used, but they were able to do that. Wow, okay. That's incredible. I mean, that's incredible feats of engineering, really. Well, this man was very smart. He ended up building, uh, like during World War II, he built a, he, de- he designed a degaussing unit where you got rid of the magnetic mm. uh, forces on, on ships so that submarines couldn't uh, hit them with magnetic bombs. That's incredible. Yeah, he was a smart man. And, uh, but he, they stayed around till the 50s. I think it was 1956 that they finally were put out of business because of the rural electricity, mm-hmm. the high lines. Right. That everyone wanted to tap into because it's much easier than generating your Well, own. and the federal government really wanted everybody to tap into it because right. that meant their, their, their push was the right thing to do. Right. Through the, you know, the, the cooperatives that they pushed out there. Right. So that was in the 50s. The, yeah, finally in the early Ish. 50s is when the high lines reached everywhere. And that's when the federal government put the big push on to get everybody off of that. Well, and it's funny because only 20-so years later is when the government got reinvolved in windmill technology and pushing it forward, which is kind of how we get to where you work and how that place kind of became what it is now because of all the money that came in in the 70s, right? Exactly. It, uh, in fact, in 1978, Congress actually did something crazy. They passed a bill that and that they all could agree on that called PURPA, and uh, it pushed commercial power companies to begin finding energy from other sources and purchasing it. And their, their hands were kind of, uh, uh, their feet were put to the fire on it. And so uh, that law was very, very important in 1978. That's why in 1979, Southern California Edison started the Wind Energy Center here of their experimental machines. When you say here, you mean in Palm Springs? Uh, in the San Gregorio Pass area, basically Palm Springs. Oh, yes. okay. Because Which is where you're located now. Exactly. The same, so the same track of land. No, it's it's a, it's a little bit different spot, okay. but it's in the same uh, wind tunnel, if you would. Sure. Uh, that that is the San Gregorio Pass area. Now let's talk about before we go into that. I want to talk about a little bit of the science because the the reason so it's the San Gregorio Pass, right? San, am I saying that right? I mispronounce everything. San Gorgonio. San Gorgonio. Did I say that? Did that nail it? Close. Okay, good enough. Um, I have the utmost respect for the San Gorgonian people, by the way. I just have a hard time pronouncing things. So when it comes to that particular geographical area, it is there's a lot of wind there. And it's kind of cool the way it works because you, you it's wind is essentially a solar thing, you were telling me. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, we've... We've got this pass up here, the the San Gregorio Pass, and that's basically a valley. It, it well, a pass Ish. is yeah, it's kind of the low spot between mountains, and because right on the north of it you have Mount San Gregorio, uh, which is a, the tallest mountain in Southern California, and then right to the south of it you have the second tallest mountain in Southern California, Mount San Jacinto, and so we've got a very hot desert down here we live in. And as the heat builds up down here, 
off to the west of those mountains is cooler air normally coming from the ocean. Mm-hmm. So as the, and the hot air is lighter, it rises up, it gets pushed into the pass, and then it, it, it draws in cooler air from the west that's heavier, but it draws it in and causes this natural venturi effect right through our pass area. And so it's really quite the, uh, uh, it's one of the best wind spots in the country. That's incredible. And the Venturi, uh, the Venturi effect is kind of cool because it's, if you think about it, uh, one of the examples that I was reading is that it's, it's kind of like when you have a f- um, water coming out of a hose and you put your thumb on it. You're basically constricting the area um, for the same amount of stuff. And then the, the, the velocity of the thing moving through that go- increases, which is, in this case is air. So air is moving. And as you constrict the area, the air moves quicker. Um, and then you harness it by it turning all these windmills. Exactly. So yeah, it's it and and this is this was the first place in the country that uh, wind turbines went in in large numbers commercially uh, because of the, that very consistent wind. Uh, even machines here, if you have a machine here, and if you have the identical machine setting up in the Altamont Pass up around the Bay Area, where they also have a lot of wind turbines, the machine here is going to produce more electricity because of the consistent winds that we have. Now let me ask. So if I ask someone up there. And the, what is it, the Alta? Altamont Pass. The Altamont Pass. So if I were to ask someone up there, if I said, hey, listen, I got a guy down in the San Gregorio Pass who's saying his windmills generate more electricity. Well, he say, well, actually, as a matter of fact, up here at Altamont, we got the fastest winds and our turbines generate the best. Would he be able to fudge the numbers and actually, make his point or no? Actually, no, because um, it's a lot of the same owners. Oh, I see. So there's no so, real competition. Yeah, so they know. Where the, where, the, where the best win's going to be. Okay. So there's no, there's like a fun rivalry between no. you guys. Oh, all right. I was trying to stoke a fire there. I thought I had something. Uh, so in, in 1979, the first like, experimental wind farm goes up. And then what happens from that point? How do you guys get involved? Well, it was 1982 when the first uh, commercial ones went in, in large, in, in large numbers. And so, uh, and then from there, you know, at that time, there was a lot of tax incentives, a lot of good reasons to get into the business. In fact, some people would even got into the business with the idea of just getting all their, their, their goodies from the various government agencies. And <laughs> if they could out. get a machine up and get it turning, they, yeah. uh, they could just about make money off of them. Uh, and so, so it didn't have to generate a profit as a business, just having it up got enough incentive to make it viable. Right. But, but the consequences of that was you had some kind of sometimes operators that weren't, didn't have their heart in it. Right. And then you also had machines that came out on the market that weren't ready. Right. And so early on, there was a lot of failures. NASA was involved early on, weren't they, in developing uh, NASA, NASA, NASA was involved. Boeing was involved. Boeing huh. got big government bucks to build big machines. Boeing failed. Well, and it makes sense because like, that's a natural move for them because they're making planes. You would think. And you uh, would have thought they could have built one. Yeah. But did they, were they just, was it like a money grab for them or did they just? I, I don't really know exactly what happened on their technology, but mm-hmm. I know that they had three or four different modifications. In fact, they called them Mod 1, Mod 2, and so on. Yeah. And um, they, they, they failed. Well, how did NASA do? Apparently, NASA uh, didn't do so well either. This is a tough nut to crack. Yeah. You've got some of the smartest people in the world on this thing. Yeah. But they've all played a part. I mean, uh, places like NASA, the, the, you know, of course, the National Renewable Energy Lab, places like that have mm-hmm. still play. you know, they're still out there working to develop things. And, and uh, so over the years, a lot of, a lot of mistakes were made, and, but they learned a lot of lessons. Sure. Well, some of the today's modern day heroes need to step on the failures of the past in order to succeed, I think. Yes. It's in some ways. You have to, you know, you got to have that killer instinct if you want to succeed. Yeah. Um, and it takes failure to, to do that. Uh, so now the term, so what if, what essentially was the reason why we have successful models today? You know, like, were there, was there anything, because obviously a lot of failures, a lot of smart people doing that. What caused them to be successful then? Well, the Danish was one of the leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a Danish company by the name of Nordtank. And Nordtank uh, took a different tact than many of the American companies. Uh, here they, they tended to think more of aircraft. And they wanted to build them lightweight, but, you know, and they, they didn't build them strong enough. Mm-hmm. And so that's where a lot of those failures come from. Various flaws, but but they just weren't strong enough. In Denmark, 
They've, they've got the North Sea that wraps all the way around their country. It's a really rough sea. And you've got um, trawlers that can go out in that, in that sea and take a beating and still come in. Mm-hmm. They realize that, that the wind doesn't just blow steady. It, there's a lot of fluctuations mm-hmm. to it. Right. So these machines take a lot of beating. So Nord Tank built this 65 kilowatt machine that was built kind of like a tank. It was really tough, but it became the model. It became, uh, in fact, over there, it wasn't so much killer in- instinct. In fact, over there, they tend to share a lot more than we do maybe here. And they shared their design once they had it developed and other companies built very similar ones. And then they all built on that, Sure. that, that success. And so there was many of those machines here. There's still some of them here. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's hard when you have, if you have a capitalist society, if you start just sharing your designs, people start building them, and then all of a sudden you're out of a job. And it doesn't matter how successful your design is, you still are out of a job, you know? Of course, you got to remember in Denmark, the CEOs don't make 100 times more than sure. their employees. <laughs> right. uh, they all tend to share a little bit better. Sure, you're. I'm not saying which system's better, but it yeah. is interesting. I mean, even look at like... Um, uh, TiVo, for example. I mean, they invented DVRs and then they're basically out of business because everyone just created their own DVRs because, you know, they didn't have the intellectual property, enough of an intellectual property to preserve it. Yet what they, the device they created is essentially the industry standard, which I think kind of happened with windmills, except as you said, they didn't really care about the profits that much, which is well, an interesting and, cultural difference. And Nordtank actually ended up combining with one of their competitors by the name of Micon and, and, uh, and then eventually they were all bought by the what is now one of the largest companies in the world, a Danish company called Vestas. Mm. So ultimately, it is like everything else in industry. There kept being people putting all the different ideas together sure, and then perfecting on them. Right. And what's kind of interesting about you, the company you work for is it's not really an energy company, right? It's more like a real estate company that is that is perf- that kind of is is the land for all of this green energy like they have the primal spot for this stuff well they they do have the prime spot for it and they've and they've been very smart in accumulating land they do still have some of their own machines on the property but uh but in the for the most part they now lease out small footprints where the machines set and then uh and they let somebody else make that investment. Right. Well, you were, you were telling me a little bit about the business plan, which is kind of interesting because, so as a real estate company, they can lease out just the square where the windmill is. Right. And then they can, so that's what, they get money on that. But also you said that they can all, they can invest in those windmills to a small percentage. So not only are they getting lease money, but also they are in fact investing in the energy company. Well, what they do is take a smaller lease payment and then, and then bet on the performance of that machine. Sure. And, and, uh, and then get income from that. So, yeah, there's alternative ways of doing it. And in most places, people are just paying rent on the land. Right. Like uh, all over the Midwest where they're in big numbers. Yeah. They're, they're just paying farmers and ranchers a, a nice lease payment each month. But um, if you're innovative and, and you have the right land, you can do what, what, what's being done here as well. Yeah. And what's also interesting about that is the land in between, because if you're only renting out the land that's in between, that's underneath the windmill, all the space in between, eventually, as these things get bigger, which we're going to get into, you have more and more land not being used that you can put solar panels in if you really want to do this or other things you can use that land for because then it's available instead of renting out like leasing out like a huge part of the land. Right. The only thing you have to be careful is making sure that you don't do anything that's going to affect the wind streams for these machines. Oh, sure. But, uh, but, you know, out here, because we have a lot of open desert, and you may have noticed we have a lot of sun, mm-hmm. uh, it makes sense that as all the technology continues to improve, which both wind and solar have dramatically, mm-hmm. that you marry those two technologies into the same spaces. Right. It makes sense. Because bigger, the bigger the machine, the more space the machine needs. And so that leaves you with a lot of space in between them. And there's a lot of sunlight coming down. Right. And you mean more, it takes up more space vertically, not horizontally. Well, vertically as well as they, the spacing oh, has oh, to right, be a right. lot greater. There's the space in between each individual exactly. windmills. So that leaves a lot of open land. Right. Now, what is the spacing? Just to give people an idea of how much space is we're talking about here. Let's start at what it used to be 
um, and what it is now, and also how big the machines are now. Well, I, I don't know that the, that the formula behind it has changed particularly, but the size of the machine has changed mm. because they basically base it on the rotor diameter of the machine. Okay. And uh, they, they want at least eight to 10 rotor diameters distance mm -hmm. between them in the direction of the prevailing wind. Okay. Which in our case here in the past is 80 to 90% of our wind under a normal year is going to come out of the west right through the pass. Right. So to, and so what, as they get bigger, the blades are bigger, which means the diameter is bigger, exactly. which means the space in between them is is in, is getting larger and larger, meaning that there's more land to be utilized for things like solar underneath. Well, for example, the two largest machines that we have are Vestas. They're 3 megawatt machines and their rotor diameter is is um, 292 feet. That's almost a football field. Exactly. That's insane. Yes, it's very big. Wow. You could draw a circle on the tarmac at an airport of, around the tips of those blades, and you could park Air Force One inside that circle, and it would not touch at any spot. That's insane. That's crazy. I mean, and, that's a rotor. That's a real rotor diameter. And the, big, the bigger the sweep, the, the more power they're going to produce. Right. So sense. those old ones had very small rotor diameters, and right. so that's why they didn't require as much space. Well, I, you know, and it's, let's talk about, like, green energy, because one of the things that appeals not only to, to me personally, but also to the government, which is why they provided the incentives, but also to people who don't want fuel and nuclear energy, uh, there's a lot of environmental benefits to this. I heard, I heard an interesting quote and in how people described using wind technology, and electricity is the crop, uh, the wind is the animal to be tamed, and you're gathering the breath of the sun. Uh, which is very fanciful things to say about this. Uh, so the people obviously believe heavily in wind technology. Why is it so good? Sell me on it. Well, you can, you can make power for, for homes and businesses, that which we all want and demand. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and if you don't know how much you miss it, just ask the folks in Puerto Rico or, or places like that where their lives are totally uh, turned upside down right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but we want that technology, we want that, that power, but if you're going to do something to harm our world as you make it, which some of our technology has done, then why not find a way that you're not harming our world as you do it? And, and you, we have the privilege of having uh, energy like wind and solar that, do, that provide no pollutants to the... Uh, and in fact, the, the carbon footprint is paid back by one of these machines in less than two years. In fact, many times a year. Wow. So they're very good for the environment. And they don't use water. And most electrical generation uses water. And here in California, we've got real problems with that. Mm -hmm. uh, even though we had a lot of rain this year, it's, you know, droughts are pretty pretty regular here. So yeah. if you could save water, it's, that, that's one more very positive benefit. No, that's true. And I guess, so let's talk about the downsides for a second, because there are some. Uh, the one being that I think it is, it, it is very difficult to have a substantial part of your grid on wind power for a couple reasons. Number one, there aren't a lot of places that are, that are as windy as the three places that are, have the largest wind farms in California. So it can be kind of difficult to harness and harvest it. Because even if you go outside the pass, I mean, how far can you go with, and have a windmill? You know what I mean? Well, that's changing too. Because, you know, the, if you look at the, at the map of the U.S. where machines are, uh, the one area of the country they're not in is the southeast. But gradually, they, they are designing machines that can be put into areas that have a less consistent wind and still be productive uh, through size, the size of the sweep, mm -hmm. through the design of their blades. So, but you do have the downside of you don't always have wind. As much as we may want it, sure. uh, we don't always have it. That, that's controlled by nature. But, uh, but if you take the, the right technologies and, and and marry them together, such as wind and solar, and then and then battery technology is 
fast developing, uh, thanks to people like Elon Musk and, 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 and uh, other people. And so as battery technology is improved and the cost comes down, you'll be able to have vast battery backups that will still be providing clean energy to the, to the, the grid, maybe when the sun's not shining. But the, but the electricity that's going into the system came from those solar panels that mm-hmm. were operating when the sun was out or when the wind was blowing at 2 o'clock in the morning and hardly anybody was using the power. And so they store that excess energy, mm-hmm. and then they can put it in the system. Like right now, Southern California Edison, who serves this part of the uh, state, has a little bit over 60 megawatts of battery storage. And they've added quite a bit of that just in the last uh, year to two years Mm -hmm. that's going to continue to push because states like california are pushing um, companies to add on to their resources so that more and more of their energy mix comes from renewables and if you have enough battery storage you never have to turn off any source when there's too much power Mm -hmm. right now what about let's let's go to animals for a second as these things get bigger and taller is there a significant impact on on birds and their migratory patterns and things like that? I mean, there's got to be bird impacts, and even the noise that comes from this thing has to affect the surrounding wildlife. Actually, um, in places where there's farms and ranches, uh, the stories I've read uh, say that the, the horses and the cows just keep right on doing their thing. As far as birds, actually, the, the larger size has, has improved safety there. The older machines were smaller, and they went much faster. They went at a much higher uh, RPM. Mm. So you had a little more of an issue. Um, Not that we've ever had an issue here in the San Gregorio Pass, because where we are, birds just don't like us very well. We have no food or water. So we've never had any issues here, but in some places they did. But today, the the wind energy business takes... The environment very serious and uh, you have to do very very careful environmental studies prior to putting one of these machines in and of all the birds killed today by man-made objects only one-tenth of one percent can be attributed to wind wow. and uh, uh, buildings Oh, you know, it's funny. I was on a plane just recently and we were stopped because we were in the air and a bird hit the front end of the, the front windshield. And actually, we, we almost had to land. So I guess technically that, that planes would also contribute to that as well. Planes are up there. They're more than wind turbines. But, but, uh, uh, but buildings are the biggest man-made object. Right. Uh, interestingly enough, in, in, in uh, nature, the biggest killer of birds is those pesky cats. Oh, yeah. Especially uh, the uh, wild ones. Um, But the reality is, all the studies you read, when you look at the biggest killer of birds, it's habitat loss. Mm -hmm. And habitat loss, whether it be through climate change or man-made actions, is the biggest killer of birds. Mm -hmm. Well, and and essentially, I mean, if you're building, I mean, just to put this back on you for a conversation's sake, if you're building windmills in their habitat, you are essentially contributing to their habitat loss, right? If if you're putting them in an area where you're going to take away their their space, yeah. But that's one of the studies you have to do is making sure you're not going to be taking away that space, right? Well, and one of the other things to, to to change topics slightly to another thing that I found very interesting is that there's this concept called microsighting. So when people are putting in windmills, so if, like if they go to put windmills on. Um, on, on a piece of land, they actually do several studies to see if that particular point, how much wind that particular point gets, uh, depending, so they can decide where is the most efficient and effective place to place a windmill. Exactly. Uh, that's, so how does that work? What, what goes into that? How, do you, how can you guarantee that and have it be consistent that that particular spot is the best wind spot? Well, when you drive around the wind farm out here, you'll see a bunch of towers uh, that are different than the wind turbines, and those towers are are um, anemometer towers, wind towers, and they have anemometers, little wind cups that go all the way up to the top of them. They're usually built about the height that you're going to of, of the hub height of the machine you're going to build, and uh, and they have directional sensors, and you're going to study that that um, wind on that piece of property for probably about eighteen to twenty four months. 
mm-hmm. just to make sure you have the right kind of wind. And there are different categories of machines based on the wind you have. So when you go to buy your machine, you're going to want to make sure you buy the right category of machine based on your wind. Mm-hmm. And so those uh, anemometer towers pay, play an important role in that. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Uh, now let's talk about the the, tur- the different turbines, the, the different categories you can buy. Um, what are the options that are out there? Well, it's going to be based on the amount of wind you have and the consistency of it, because it could be that like in the ones they just built in North Carolina, they had to put a lot bigger blades on. You mean longer or thicker? Longer. Longer, okay. And they have a very big uh, rotor diameter on those. And so, but it makes them effective in that in that wind area. So they're going to just base the design of the machine based on your wind. So there's there's different, I mean, even the different blades, like, you know, way back when the rural places had look like 20 different blades on there. And some have two now, some have three, some have four. Uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages? Well, the, the vast majority of machines built today have three blades. At one time, they tried the two. They, they've even had one blade of machines. Uh, and there was some four-bladed machines out here in our pass area, I'm told, at one time. I never saw them. But, um, but today, the, the advantage of three is those three blades are always in balance. They have the best power production. Mm-hmm. And even economically, it, it's kind of strange, but three blades makes more sense than two. Because in order to produce the same amount of electricity from a two-bladed machine as you would a three... The blades on the two-bladed machine have to be much, much longer, and it makes them more expensive. And so the three blades economically has worked out, and it's really a pretty good thing because we humans mm-hmm. find the three-blade machines more aesthetically appealing to look at. Right. I'm guessing that even though all the Moneyball stuff you're talking about where they compared uh, two-blade to three-blade and that even, you know, from a micro-financial standpoint, it makes sense. I think what really sent them over the edge was that humans like it more. I bet that's probably true. It's probably a good thing that it it worked out that way. Uh, But uh, because they are built in the midst of humans. And so you... Sure. And and I personally find them very attractive, but they're... (laughs) You are you paid to say that? Do you have to say that? No, I I, I think they're cool. Well, I, I I think they're really they're definitely they attract the eye and they're very they're very different. Um, uh, I like them as well, especially like the big monstrous ones you have. It's like David and Goliath. They have these things that are just towering over everyone. They're really cool. Um, and also talking about the, the blades, the ones what we're talking about is a is a horizontal axis. So basically, where there's like an axis, and then the the, the um, the blades are on there spinning in a typical windmill, wind turbine kind of fashion. But they also have some that have a vertical axis that um, I have a picture of. Uh, it looks more like a, I can't even really explain it, it looks more like a box, but the blades kind of spin in the other direction um, from, a ver- from a vertical standpoint. Uh, what are the differences in, in that horizontal versus vertical air capture? Well, engineers will tell you that a vertical access machine probably should be a better design. Like on paper, it makes more sense. Exactly. Okay. Because you don't have to have, you don't have to check which direction the wind's coming from to turn the machine. It's always in the wind. But, but, oh, in, but oh in, that's really interesting. Okay. But in reality, what they have discovered, at least early on in that um, wind energy center here, was the machines that were built. Some of them were built by a company that we've all probably heard of called Alcoa. Mm-hmm. But uh, these machines just couldn't stand up to the forces that they were, they were met with, and they would come apart. And so they never really held up at all. There are two very interesting-looking machines up in the Eiffel Tower that they put in about, oh, I guess it's been about three years ago now. Vertical wind turbines. Yeah, and, but they have a very cool sweeping blade. Hmm. And, uh, but I've not been able to find any articles since they installed them. There was lots of articles when they put them in about about the machines, but I haven't been able to find any articles since then that tells me whether they've been success, successful or not. What do they capture that energy for? To light the lights? To light the lights. And, and I understand they changed the whole tower to LED lights. Hmm. And uh, that's how they could make it all the different colors they do. Right. And, uh, and so these wind turbines help supply the power. Hmm. Now, now, when it comes to the blades, 
what causes them to spin? I mean, is it do they have to be turned like perpendicular to the wind, horizontal? What does that? Well, in a sense, they're kind of like an airplane wing in, in, a, in the sense that they, they create lift. Okay. There's a high pressure and a low pressure side. And, uh, and so when they're turned correctly, so that the wind is hitting them from the right direction, they create lift. And, and of course, all they can do is move, go in a circle. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they use that lift to do that. But they can go too fast, right? I mean, there's, there is a too fast. There is too fast. Uh, in fact, at 55 to 60 miles an hour, most people shut their machines down to protect them. And so th- does that mean that, they do- that the power they produce uh, is not worth the damage that they're doing to their turbines? No, it, would just be, it wouldn't be that they would produce more power. It'd be that you would damage the turbine just okay. because it can't control the speed of that, of that much wind. Got it. Uh, they have enough pitch control to, to, get, to go up to there. But at that point, then you don't have enough control. Sure. And you don't want the machine to run away, uh, to get away from itself. So you want to be able to control it. So then they turn them off. And how, what is the initial energy that's required to get these things moving? I'm told it's approximately 3% of the, of the output in the machine. Um, oh, I see. Okay. So then that would, the miles per hour would be dependent upon the machine itself. Well, all the machines run on a certain amount of energy from the grid system. Uh, it runs the computers. It runs the motors. That's the parasitic power you were mentioning yes. to me. Yes. Yes. I like that. Parasitic power. So basically the power that it produces is sucked away by these infernal computer contraptions. Yes. But uh, it's a very small number compared to how much they put out right. each year. Well, but I mean, so what I'm saying is that turbine dead stop wind is starting to pick up what is the what speed of wind is required to start those eight to ten miles an hour okay so eight to ten miles an hour will start it up 50 is the max so it's almost very similar to driving a car like you want to get you know you want to hit cruising speed about 20 your maximum is about 50 to 60 um, before you get pulled over by the cops so that's kind of an easy way to think about it yeah yeah and you just don't you just want to make sure you don't damage the machine so you're gonna you're gonna protect them and now most of these things spin clockwise is there any reason for that? Is counter is that is there a mathematical equation that says that clockwise is somehow more efficient than these things? Actually, I'm, from what I've read, they both work, both directions. There are two or three machines out here that are smaller machines that actually run counterclockwise. I've noticed that many of the small personal machines that people buy for their homes run counterclockwise. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Yes. Uh, why is that? I I don't know what the difference is. Why that why they choose one over the other. Um, and you, so, but there's no real performance difference. It just happens to be an aesthetic thing. Maybe people just want well, to be different. You wouldn't want in a midst in a midst of a wind farm to have a whole lot of machines going in opposite directions. That would be very difficult on the eye. In fact, these two or three little machines that do go the wrong way yeah. compared to everything else. When you look over at them, and they're right next to a machine that goes clockwise like everything else. Yeah, it kind of makes your eyes. Uh, uh, crazy. I like So if you purposely wanted to mess with people, you would have like one going counterclockwise, <laughs> one going clockwise and just m- mix it up like that. Yeah. But I, I'm told that they can go both ways and it's all, and it's okay. So the ones that people are using now, um, cause you said there were a lot of failures, a lot of, um, successes. W- what is the top of the line model now? And, and how much is, what's the output? How big is it? Now, that's one of those points probably a lot of people would argue with you on. Okay. Um, well, they're going to argue with you because I'm asking you. But, but uh, Vesta's is obviously one of the leaders because they, they have been uh, in the business for a, a long time. And, the Danish. The Danish folks are very, very invested. In fact, there's times in Denmark they get more than 100% of their electricity from wind. Wow. Uh, but, um, and that, of course, that excites them a lot. I but, they're, they're uh, a smaller country, though. Yes. I mean, it's impressive. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've got the utmost respect for the Danish people. I'm just saying it's a, it's a, yes. a harder thing to do here in the United States. But, but they, made a, they, made a, a, they made a choice to go in that direction, so, uh, as, as opposed to going to nuclear. Mm, I see. But, uh, of course, in this country, uh, if you don't mention GE then you've left a big player out, and they build right. very, very good machines. Um, 
on our on our wind farms out here, actually Mitsubishi's are have are a popular machine. So you've got and then over in Europe, you have several other countries. You see you see more over there. Uh, here we don't see companies like Siemens mm-hmm. or Intercon mm-hmm. uh, so much, but they do. But they do have machines in other parts of the country. All right, so let, let me let me let me step back. Uh, I don't. Let's not talk about best. Let's talk about the the most output, the biggest thing you got going on out there. Um, how big is it, and what's the output? The largest we have here in the in the San Gregorio Pass is three megawatts. On land, about three point eight megawatts is as big as you're going to go. Now offshore, like for instance, the uh, offshore site here off of Rhode Island, mm-hmm. off of Block Island, are six megawatts. Wow. So twice as big. Twice as big. Or powerful, anyway. And those blades, where our longest blade here is 144 feet, those blades are almost 240 feet. Whoa. So they're almost a football field as a blade. Yes. That's insane. But, of course... You can't transport those down the road. That'd be too long to take down a highway. And but that's the reason they build bigger ones offshore. Right. Is because you can then build the manufacturing facility for those like the blades right there on the waterfront. And in this case, in Rhode Island, they took an old uh, uh, military facility right on the waterfront, turned it into a blade factory, mm. and that enabled them to build them right there and then put them out on the ships. Oh, that makes sense. Because that's the next evolution, right? Is the when when I was saying that we're running, you don't have a lot of spots here. There's plenty of stuff out in the ocean that gets tons of wind, and you could have offshore um, wind farms that can produce, as you said, twice as much as the strongest one here. Yeah, and and they've developed machines up as big as nine megawatts for offshore. Wow! But uh, that's like know, super villain big. Yeah, I mean, that's insane. But in Europe. They, they have thousands of machines. I think the number, last number I heard was 3,000 offshore machines. 3,000 offshore? Yes. Who, who's the country leading those? In the well, Denmark, Germany, uh, England. Wow, really? Yeah. Uh, you m- remember uh, President Trump was all upset because they were going to build them right off of his golf resort. Oh, they're, right. in, they're in Scotland. Right. <laughs> I don't think he's a big fan of clean energy. Uh, no. Uh, so I don't think we'll be. I don't think we'll get a big push while he's here. Um, now, now one thing you told me that I thought was really interesting is the, and, and I've seen this confirmed in other places, is that the largest growing job sector is basically wind turbine repairman. Yes, wind service tech. Wind service uh, tech by about nine times the rest of the economy. It's growing. Why do you think that is? That's a pretty large number. Well. They're going in at a high rate of speed. The fastest growing form of new electrical generation in this country for some time now has been wind. And, uh, and so if you're going to put the machines in, you've got to have somebody to take, to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Though they're very reliable machines, they still need someone to, to pamper them a little bit. Right. And so uh, uh, you've got to have people to do that. that are, and as they're more and more technical, obviously they need skills. So, but, and you also have to have that little thing that, uh, where heights don't bother you. Yeah. Because you may be on top of a tower at, at uh, 300 feet or uh, rappelling down a blade uh, to inspect it. It's pretty crazy that when you do the service on these things, you do have to go up. How, how are these things are stories tall, like three or four stories tall? Well, like the GEs that we have on the property where, where our tour building is, uh, those are uh, just over 213 feet up to the hub. That's crazy. And so it's basically a 20-story building, and you're going to climb a ladder up the inside of the tower to get to the top. Just a regular ladder all the way up? 20-story uh, ladder? Yes. and, and uh, No you, elevators in these things? Uh, not in most of them. However, the two big Vestas, the big three megawatt machines that we have, do have a lift. Mm. That lift will take you about two-thirds of the way up. A lift? We're not in England. You mean an elevator? No. Um, it's like a construction lift. Okay. It, it kind of has that look about it. I got you. So and, uh, not it, like a push of one, two, three, four kind no, of no. deal. Okay. And it climbs right up. It's got the, one stop, I imagine. Well, there's... Yes, uh, but uh, but... They climb up the backside of the ladder. Okay. They use the backside of the ladder to 
to have the lift on, and then you, if you have to climb, then you can climb up all the way up on the other side of the ladder. Wow. So when you get to the top, sometimes you have to rappel down the blades. You have to attach yourself like a SWAT team member. Yes. Yes. What can you do on the tip of a blade? Well, I mean, what? Well, you're going to inspect it. it now, so they're not going to do any work. They're just going to be looking at it. And well, then... they may be making repairs. Wow. Uh, Bring your tools with you too? Yes. Wow. But uh, it's interesting. I, I was talking to a, uh, tech, a technical guy that inspects blades. He now uses uh, drones, and he'll he'll inspect the blades with the drone, and then if he sees anything he needs to take a closer look at, then he has to climb the tower and go out on the blade. <laughs> right. Oh, so he got kind of lazy with it, but a little but smart, too. It's very smart. Yeah. It's both, both things. Work smarter, not harder kind yes. of a thing. Yes. I like that. Um, well, I'll be remiss if we don't talk about one other thing while I have you here. We're talking about the Coachella Valley. Um I, when you go on your tour, you get a free date smoothie, right? Smoothie? A date shake. Date shake. I'm sorry. My, my apologies. Uh, dates are really popular here. What's going on with that? Well, we grow 95% of the dates that's consumed in the U.S. right here in the, in the valley. Uh, now, in, now, in truth, it's not a super popular fruit. So growing 95% is, you know. It's very popular here. Well, I imagine so. <laughs> no, no disrespect. I have the utmost respect for the uh, Coachella Valley people and their date population. Well, you know, you figure you take a date and, you know, you've got people all over the country that eat uh, bananas to get potassium. Yeah, I do. I'm one of those guys. Well, you can eat dates and each date has more potassium than one banana. No kidding. And unlike that banana that you, uh, that you if you sit on your counter for, for more than a few days. Yeah that's going to turn black on you. Yeah. You can leave those dates sitting on your counter for Years, several, right? several weeks. Oh, weeks. You can put them in the fridge and they'll, they'll last a year. <laughs> really? Yeah. I was yeah. just kidding. They'll really last a year? Uh, and they'll last five years in your freezer. <laughs> Not that you're going to leave them that long. They're too good. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, so date shakes are a big deal here. Yeah. And the place we happen to stop at uh, uh, happens to make the best ones in the Coachella Valley because they do it the really right way. What's the right way? Well, the right way is you take real vanilla ice cream, not ice milk or, or soft serve. Love this story already. And you uh, puree up the freshest medjool dates mm. instead of using date crystals to flavor them. Mm -hmm. And then you hand make your shakes. Got it. So every shake that people on our tour get is handmade uh, with, the, with the best ingredients. Right. And they're really good. Right. Well, I got to tell you, when I went on the tour with you, I didn't get a date shake. So I'm, I'm, I got I to gotta get one of these things because you've just sold it to me. Um, they sound delicious. And they are. Well, now, how can people, uh, you're, so you're, what group are you with and how can people find you? How can people go on this tour? Because the amount of knowledge, you'll end up loving not only dates as obvious, and date shakes. If you didn't love shakes already, uh, the talk of ice cream and fruit, it sounds delicious. Um, so if you weren't a shake fan, you're going to be, but you can be a turbine fan, thanks to Randy here. How can people find your tour? Windmilltours.com. Windmilltours.com? That was available when you guys signed yes. up? Wow. Okay, that easy enough. That's like the easiest and, thing to and, remember. And the best thing about our tour is, is we're the only, there are a couple other people that do tours, but they don't have access like we do. We take you right out on the wind farm. Well, that's really, you know, I was wondering about that. So um, good old Hugh Hauser, the guy I seem to be following around subject matter wise, um, he came out here with an, a whole nother group. I'm not going to mention their name here, but um, I didn't know that there were multiple groups. I thought you guys on the land, you're letting freeloaders on the land. What's going on here? They don't get on the land. They have to, they have to operate from the road. No kidding. And in m most cases, they don't even get out of their, out of their van or their bus. Uh, on ours, we get you right out on the windmill farm. You get right out and you get to experience uh, how they sound. The how, majesty of them. The majesty, how quiet they are. They really are, mm -hmm. the, these new machines. Yeah. Um, and so you get a real experience of being around these machines. It's not the same as when you have to sit on the road inside of a van. So, sure. <laughs> uh, so we get you out and get you the real experience. But we're yeah. the only ones that can do that. Right. Um, well, there it is. I highly recommend um, windmilltours.com. Randy, this has been so educational. Thank you so much for sitting with me today. Thank you very much. And come, come and see us at the Windmill Farm. Absolutely. Um, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. 
The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode or follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the webpage. You can also subscribe to the newsletter uh, that I have. You'll see a link at the bottom of the page, and you'll hear about upcoming guests and even upcoming projects that aren't Fascinating Nouns related. And if you love this show, which I know you will, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play. And for all of my projects, go to DanielJGlenn.com. Thank you so much for listening. End of transmission.